this week's Oh God, It's Charlie Behind the Wheel this time edition. Um, we are without the wonderful uh, Jess Lilly this week, which is, I think, only the second time in history that um, that she's not been able to make it in. But as more than a consolation, we have the wonderful Najma Sambul from uh, The Age back after a far too long um, absence. Najma, how are you? I'm good, Charlie. How are you? Yeah, good, good. All the better for seeing you, I must say. Um, I'm nervous. I haven't done this in a while. Yeah. I'm like, what do I do with my hands? Can I drink my <laughs> cup of tea? Like, what's going on? Can I pull, adjust my chair? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And obviously, you know, and, and usually if, you, I mean, if it was, if you were back and it was all three of us, you'd have, you know, the steady, reliable hand of, of Jess kind of corralling all of us. Yeah, I could. Yeah. Keeping things from getting too chaotic. But I don't even know if we're going out now. Like, I don't know if this is broadcast (laughs) (laughs) anything could happen anything can happen and that is exciting and terrifying so uh it's wonderful to have you back Najma so Spin Cycle if this is the first time you're tuning in uh kind of seeks to make sense of the relentlessness of the news cycle (laughs) and kind of break down those issues um and this week we're going to be chatting uh, a little bit later with uh James Oten who is the North Asia correspondent for ABC uh the show Foreign Correspondent returns tonight actually almost immediately after we finish so we're, we're, we're we won't it. be watching it. Clearly, yeah. we'll be driving home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll be. But but it's but available on iView. I've been told to mention it's available on iView for as long as you want to watch it. Um, but so we are doing a very very timely bit of spruiking for what seems to be an incredible um, report from James Oden and some of his colleagues looking at uh, Japan's new front line. So an incredible uh, build up of military spending in the region, which is uh, very historically significant and something that I'm really looking forward to getting into him, getting into with him. Um, Najma, what have you been up to? How have you been? It's been it's been years. <laughs> okay, relax. I'll see you in December. <laughs> um, no, it's been really good. I'm just like currently on the business desk at the age, doing the market reporting, and you know it's interesting time with economics. What's mm. going on with you know? You know, hacking up them interest rates. A lot of people a bit nervous with their mortgage repayments, naturally. And um, obviously we had the Senate estimates. So um, seeing Philip Lowe get grilled about these things, um, you know, it's just been very, very interesting. Yeah. For for those of us, I mean, I think that market reports is one of those phrases that people in the biz kind of understand and think everyone gets. And I'm not actually sure if that's true. Um, Okay, are you, is this the part where you're asking me to define what I actually do? <laughs> yeah, what do, what do you even do all day? I suppose the market went up, the market went down, <laughs> right. you know. Uh, it's, a, it's a bit more than that. It's providing the context as to why, of course. Like, mm-hmm. So, for instance, today, Telstra's results. So it's February earnings season. So a lot of big companies are reporting on their half-yearly earnings. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we know CBA had record profits kind of bolstered by the interest rate hikes. Uh, a bit awkward, um, <laughs> to say the least. Um, and then you had um, and then you had uh, Telstra obviously have their, you know, record profit. Oh, I don't think it was record. I think they had good profits. Um, AMP went down. So it was just kind of like seeing these big organisations either, you know, impress their Investors or let down, or but it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. no. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's basically then kind of keeping on top of what's leading um, 
what's leading headlines and putting that into context for regular people like yourself and I who are not analysts, traders, investors and who just kind of want to know what's going on this in the stock market really. So if you ever have any time, go on the age and see <laughs> <laughs> our daily market wrap and it might – there's like a 9 out of 10 chance it's going to be me for the next couple <laughs> of weeks. And you know what? It's been great. I've been learning heaps and – I'm definitely understanding, you know, that phrase, money makes the world go round. Right, yeah, yeah. Because it's really controlling my life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounds great. And as you you mentioned there, we can talk a little bit about sentiment estimates uh, later on in the short program after we've spoken to James and some of the really interesting implications, I suppose, for political journalists when they're covering... um, a kind of a mm. process like that. Yeah. Um, and we'll also probably be getting into uh, some interesting choices in expertise that some of the big publications have been getting into recently, but all will be revealed soon. Triple R. We are now joined by James Oten. James Oten is the ABC's North Asia correspondent covering uh, Japan, South Korea and North Korea. Uh, He was previously the ABC's South Asia correspondent based in New Delhi. And during this time, he covered such huge stories as the horrifying surge of the COVID-19 Delta variant in India and the Taliban returning to power in Afghanistan. James, welcome. Um, So there's already an incredible piece uh, based on some of your reporting and some of your colleagues uh, on the ABC already about the uh, remote Japanese island of Ishigaki. Um, so could you just maybe talk our, our listeners a bit through the uh, the historical significance of that island? Yeah, sure. So Ishigaki uh, is very close to Taiwan. When you think of Japan, it's kind of wedged up there, kind of somewhere near Korea and Russia. But this island itself is less than 300 kilometres than Taiwan. And it's a beautiful little spot. Um, sandy, white beaches, uh, tranquil, clear water, mountains, jungles, uh, it's a lovely spot. Some people have compared it to like that Jurassic Park type scene. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but the history of the island, it is an Okinawan island, not the Okinawa, as people may think, uh, but it's part of that region. And this part of the world had a particularly brutal uh, experience in the Second World War uh, when the uh, Japanese Imperial Army were kind of putting up their final stand against the Americans and they forced a lot of uh, the residents deep into the jungles and a lot of people uh, on this island, for instance, died of starvation or malaria particularly. So Japan for the past 70 years has had a really strong pacifist culture. You'd be hard-pressed to find a country that has a stronger pacifist culture than Japan. Um, but it's particularly prevalent down there given what they endured. And it's also, you know, a level of distrust, I suppose, was sown into some people down there, certainly the pacifist kind of uh, group there, um, who feel that, you know, the Japanese Imperial Army sacrificed the locals um, when, you know, the war was should have been over by then. Uh, and so there's always a bit of a distrust or there has been a lingering distrust in the anti-war camp down there. And now the big fear, of course, being so close to Taiwan is whether or not these people will be wedged in another big power battle between Japan, uh, sorry, between China this time and the United States. And I suppose that then uh, gets to the the other kind of uh, focus of the reporting, which is that uh, Japan is embarking on its biggest military spend um, uh, since the Second World War, which, as you've as you've said, is is very historically significant given their experience of the Second World War and the way that they kind of legally responded to that in terms of their their uh, approach to military matters. Um, talk us through a little bit about about uh, I suppose 
what that looks like practically in terms of this this new war footing that we're seeing? Yeah, so Japan's had a military since the Second World War, but it's been on a strictly defensive footing, and the Constitution itself prohibits Japan from going to war. Uh, But there's always a bit of a grey zone there. But essentially what Japan has to do is um, argue that any military action is strictly for defence of Japan and its territory. So what we've had over the past 70 years is it's kind of been structured to stop an invading army. You know, once upon a time, there was concerns about the Soviet Union. Um, So, for instance, we look at missiles. Now, the missiles here can only go around 200 kilometres, which isn't very far for a missile, and it doesn't get you very very much, but it could stop, in theory, an invading army or their ships or whatever that are close to the the shore. Now Japan wants to get missiles that will go over 1,000 kilometres, Tomahawk missiles from the United States. Now, a 1,000 kilometres from these remote islands I just mentioned, that gets you mainland China, and that changes a lot of things. It means that Japan could, in theory, strike, uh, if there was a conflict, it could strike the ports or the airfields or the missile batteries of China. Of course, you know, there's other concerns here. There's North Korea as well. Um, Same goes there as well. Uh, But that changes the dynamic a lot. And what Japan has also done is built military bases on these islands. So Onishigaki, its military base, the fourth built in recent years on these islands, is only a few weeks from opening up. Now, those in support of what Japan is doing, uh, and there's a lot, um, will say this isn't about picking a fight. It's not about wanting to go to war. It's It's about deterrence, deterrence being the key word here. Uh, They would argue that it's about showing China that Japan can put up a fight and it can hit your targets and hurt the enemy if it needs to. So by sending this signal, hopefully it prevents a war from happening. Oh, my God, that sounds terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hi there. Um, I I guess, like, I suppose, you know, reporting on this stuff as an Australian, um, what's your nervous kind of levels at with a uh, conflict over taiwan no just I mean, more uh, of um you know of japan who have this kind of long-standing pacifist kind of outlook and now even japan is seemingly trying to bolster up what does that you know what goes through your mind do you feel like you're living through like a cold war-esque type of you know vibe Look, you feel it more up here in Japan uh, than you might in Australia, but there are similar kind of elements there. Um, Certainly Japan itself, uh, you know, the defence thinkers here um, will say, look at our precarious geography. You know, you've got Russia, you've got North Korea and you've got China all on this western flank here. Um, You have North Korean rockets flying over Japan. Um, Russia... um, You know, what really changed the thinking here is when Russia invaded Ukraine. That's when a a switch was flicked in Japan and they thought, you know, war is real. War can happen. We've been living in this world where there was a bit of a threat under the Cold War uh, from the Soviet Union here felt. Um, But now it feels more real to the people of Japan. And so when you hear, you feel that and, and it feels like there is an intensity um, of catch-up, of we, we have nothing, no time to lose, we've got to get going, mm-hmm. we've only got five years, which to completely reform uh, the military, which is, you know, in some ways what they're doing here, uh, it's a lot in five years. It's a lot. So there is this kind of um, 
pace, I suppose, and intensity you get here, which you wouldn't, I don't think, feel down there in Australia. You hinted at this a little bit before, um, but I suppose, I mean, I'm interested to get a sense of what, what your sense is in terms of the actual, pop, the feeling of the populace of Japan. I mean, I know that in the piece, obviously, the residents of Ishigaki, for very understandable re- historical reasons, are very nervous at the prospect of, of any kind of potential war and what their role would be as, in part of that. Do you get the sense that that kind of nervousness uh, is replicated in the kind of wider Japanese population? Or do you feel that there's a bit more support for this kind of move, um, yeah, more generally? Broadly, there is support to beef the military up a bit, but that's very vague kind of do you support, you know, Japan having a stronger defence? And people say, yeah, that sounds good. Why not? Um, Obviously, there are people who have that kind of lifelong attachment to pacifism who are quite wary of this. Uh, And Japan, for instance, you know, there's talk about removing the pacifist part of its constitution, um, which is just... One thing too far, I think, for the Japanese public to swallow. It's a huge uh, fight if they wanted to do that. I don't think the Prime Minister of Japan really has the popularity to to win that argument. So they'll do everything else without actually changing the constitution. Um, But the issue now is, as well as, you know, you do have to overcome those hurdles of pacifism here and the people who don't want uh, a bigger military. But with a massive record military spend, it costs money. It costs a lot of money. And we're talking about Japan based on current military budgets. It, it, it would go somewhere around what Russia spends if this all goes through. So that's huge. Um, now, how to pay for it? Well, that means probably tax hikes. And that's what they're talking about. And the Japanese economy hasn't been in great shape for a while. Cost of living pressures here are very real. They've been, uh, you know, kind of borderline arguably longer than Australia in in many ways from wages not going up uh, much at all over the past couple of decades. So the second the government mentions taxes, you're going to have to pay for this through taxes and increase taxes, then it becomes more real. Then it's not so abstract anymore and it's really going to affect people on the ground. And that is a huge argument now that the government's going to have to try and win people over because right now, uh, overwhelmingly, there's a very strong, you know, in the 60% of people in recent polling is saying, absolutely no, I am opposed to you raising taxes to spend on the military. Mm. I suppose the interesting thing as well is what does the younger generation think of all of this? Do they hold on to the same kind of pacifist ideals as people that, you know, similar to um, the person, the woman that you'd interviewed, um, mm. that, you know, is a lifelong pacifist because, you know, had firsthand experience of the war? Have you had the opportunity to speak to younger generations or do you kind of understand the mood um, and where they're kind of, you know, headed with this? I mean, I think you can, first of all, I think the older generations would worry that the younger generations are a bit aloof. Um, Mm. They don't appreciate what uh, Japan kind of endured. Um, You know, there's first of all, should be acknowledged that whether or not Japan has fully accepted the harm it inflicted uh, in World War II Mm. is one separate argument. Um, Certainly people in Korea and China would say no way has Japan really appreciated what it inflicted on other countries. But... Uh, one thing that was that did come out of the war very strongly is that war is hell and people suffer, mm. everyone suffers. And that's been taught in the education system throughout. Um, you see kind of in, even, you know, my kids in childcare 
there's still like world peace stuff in childcare, and you know my kid has no clue what what it means. But you can see it; it's it's right there at an early age. Um, in places like Harajuku, which is a quite quite a trendy part of Tokyo, I see no war signs at cafes, for instance, talking about the war in Ukraine. So it's still certainly there; it's still quite strong. But um, I don't feel that people on the main islands would feel as appreciative of how tense a situation feels compared to Okinawa. Because keep in mind, not only did these people uh, endure some of the worst horrors from a Japanese perspective, but they've also had an American military base right there uh, in Okinawa. It's one of the major, arguably the most important American military base um, in this region. And that's almost been a permanent reminder of the war, for starters, and of the potential conflict in the future as well. And certainly people in Okinawa feel they've shouldered the burden after the conflict, after World War II, much more than the main island people of Japan have. They don't have to live next to a military base and be reminded with you know military aircraft coming and going all the time. Mm. So that is kind of a bit of a ten- uh, tension, I suppose, between these remote islands and the people, for instance, of Tokyo as well. It's fascinating. I mean, I suppose uh, it, going pulling out from the the specifics of the story and a bit more about your role in general. Um, do you find I'd be just to sort of hear about your process and about the kind of some of the advantages and disadvantages that, that you face, maybe trying to I- explore these slightly more, uh, I guess, sensitive topics um, as an outsider, like especially in a in a culture like Japan. Um, uh, yeah, I guess talk us through that a little bit. Um, well, it's, um, I, I suppose, in terms of media engagement, Japan is more of a reserved country. Um, you know, in, in America, for instance, not that I've worked there myself, but you can kind of tell people like giving opinions. Um, <laughs> media access to people, uh, whether it's, you know, business, the military. I mean, I do deal with the American military here, uh, and they're very, very open to media engagement um that you know you say jump you know they and they'll say how high you know they're very accommodating to having you there um this is you know a much more reserved country much more uh, bureaucratic country uh thick with bureaucracy it was a little bit easier down here i think okinawans are a bit more uh, making some generalizations here but a little bit more uh, open um arguably um but i think because it's such a hot button issue now um, that uh, people do want to talk. And it should be noted, you know, there are two sides to the argument down there as well. Um, you know, certainly I've spoken with someone who lived through the war. Uh, she was seven when her family forced into the jungle. And, uh, you know, her baby sister died from starvation. Her mother died from malaria. Of course she wants to get the message out that war is hell. And, you know... Uh, but on the other side, I, I met with a fisherman uh, and slash councillor who goes to these disputed islands, uh, which China claims they're called the Senkaku in Japan and Diaoyu in China. And he films the Chinese Coast Guard and what Japan and what he will say is that they're entering Japanese territory and he films these tense confrontations. And so from his position, he says China is being the aggressor. So he wants to tell Japan and the world uh, about this, so on this particular issue in this particular location, um, access chatting to people. I think people really wanted to get uh, their voices heard uh, on both sides. Those who feel that we're going down a path of conflict and war, which should be avoided, and those who feel that 
uh, Japan hasn't done anything wrong here and it's China who's being the aggressor. And so Japan needs to, you know, essentially muscle up. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting hearing you talk about that and the fishermen, that paints a really kind of vivid image, right? Um, You know, we've had lots of vivid images being painted for us. We've had Chinese spy balloons being shot down over North America. Has that, you know, what kind of um, influence at all has that had on people's opinions in Japan? Well, Japan discovered some spy balloons. Uh, funnily <laughs> enough, they they um, re you well. They say, say they, yeah, everyone gets a balloon. It seems these days. Um, <laughs> their weather, their weather. You know, just <laughs> yeah, exactly. Look, um, a bit like you know what America did after one balloon was found. Japan recalibrated its past kind of uh, uh, detections of unidentified objects, flying objects. And they said, oh, it turns out we think these balloons from 2019, 2020 and 2021 were uh, most likely Chinese spy balloons uh, as as well. So, um, and, and again, now what's happening, for instance, you know, Japan's army, the self-defence forces, that's Navy, Air, Army, um, they can only use force or use weapons when... It's, a, it's an absolute emergency, natural disaster type situation, or when Japan's being attacked. And so already after this news a few days ago when the Japanese government said, oh, well, actually, we also uh, had some balloons. We just didn't realise it at the time. Um, they're now rethinking to use force. So when you've got the Americans shooting down balloons, uh, Japan's like, well, we need to shoot down balloons if it happens again as well. So, again, that kind of goes back to this point where Japan is, it seems, on this catch-up game uh, to, you know, in some ways function like a normal army. Um, you know, that certainly those who defend it will say we just want Japan to have a normal military and not all these constraints uh, attached. Uh, so, yeah, certainly, uh, and, you know, Japan was pretty much in lockstep with the United States, you know, with any kind of sentiments that the US has, has come about. So when Japan made the statements about the balloon, they weren't too dissimilar to what America was saying about the balloons over their territory. And, and legally, I mean, this, this is perhaps a, a minor detail, but it does interest me. In terms of uh, the idea of shooting down a balloon or some, some action of that sort, would that not, that wouldn't be a, um, a, a breach that would still be considered an attack on Japan, having, um, you know, a, a, an explicit spying action like this happen? I, I suppose the thing is, is, how would you challenge it in court? You know, once mm. you do, the balloon's gone anyway. Um, <laughs> and, you know, some of the experts I've spoken with here would say, no, the courts here are quite government-friendly anyway, so it'd be futile to go down that path. You know, and again, if there was some kind of conflict, it would be futile another, another, to challenge in the courts. Another thing important to note is um, a few years ago, um, under the former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, the constitution was reinterpreted to allow Japan to defend America as considered, uh, you know, uh, defending Japan because they're a military alliance, America defends Japan, so it was reinterpreted. So Japanese armed forces can defend American armed forces too. So when you apply that to the situation over Taiwan, if America gets involved... Japan is legally, by this interpretation, able to defend the Japanese, uh, the American armed forces, um, or at least they could argue that case that they can under this uh, reinterpretation. Uh, then, of course, the element changes whether or not 
you know, if there was a war over Taiwan or was a conflict, whether or not the Chinese uh, would attack American assets that are based in Japan as well. So then you very much do directly have an attack on uh, Japan. So that would clear the way. Um, so, look, it's a strange one where Japan has to argue whatever it's doing is in the defence of Japan. So don't expect to see Japanese warships over there in the Middle East because it can't really be argued that that's defending mm-hmm. Japan. But certainly what it, what is needed to, quote, defend Japan, that's changing. And Japan is arguing that it has to go further than just waiting for you know, a potential enemy to be on its doorstep. And one of the arguments, for instance, again, if you look at the war in Ukraine, is when you have rockets being fired from Russia into Ukraine, you can shoot the rockets down, but it's very expensive and it's very inaccurate. You certainly don't get them all. You know, so why should Japan sit back and wait for rockets Mm. to come down when it could, in theory, strike the targets before the rockets come over? Now, again, I'm going down the path of Mm. hypotheticals here, So, um, but that is the argument for why... Uh, Japan has decided it needs missiles, for instance, that can go much further than this very close uh, radius of 200 kilometres, which, as I mentioned before, really doesn't get you very much. Wow. That's just... (laughs) (laughs) Um, That was really fascinating. I might just ask a, you know, a slightly kind of different question just about yourself and your career. Um, how did you get to where you got and, you know, what kind of lessons have you learned on the way? Oh, that's a loaded one. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry, take your time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I've got to leave Um, (laughs) I guess, I suppose just in terms of, you know, I'm a young journalist. I feel like, you know, if you haven't sat there and thought, I want to be a foreign correspondent, (laughs) have you, like, why even in journalism? Um, So how did you go from just being, um, I guess, a reporter to doing the foreign correspondent work? So um, I always wanted to be involved in the international space in one shape or form from high school. Mm -hmm. Um, Thought I wanted to be a journalist but lacked the confidence to go through with journalism uh, at uni. Didn't get in the RMIT course. Oh, uh, neither did I. Taylor's oldest time, that one. (laughs) So I did. I mean, my spelling and grammar were atrocious. It's probably why I'm in broadcast. Um, you know, I don't have to spell as long as I speak properly. Yeah. Um, so I did international relations at Latrobe first of all, and mm-hmm. that got me started. Uh, I started a, after that. I started a master of communications. Then after that, kind of had my you know, what is it fifth life crisis. Yeah. Just kind of, I actually did an internship at SBS, and it just oh, snapped yeah. me out of this idea that. Um, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. You know, having that yeah. taste of journalism at SBS radio um, just told me if I do anything else, I'm not going to be happy. And it's very hard when you're young uh, trying to pick a, a career, you know, for life. You know, I know we always change jobs and stuff. It's a very stressful experience. One of the things I'm so grateful for is I made that realisation that this is what I want to do. And uh, I genuinely love it. I genuinely enjoy meeting people and hearing what they've got to say and, and learning about their experiences. Some of those experiences I meet, uh, I hear about and see, you know, being a broadcast, I'm usually at the location of the events. You know, I've seen some absolutely tragic events as well, but uh, I suppose I always have confidence in songs. I'm getting the message out there, you know, and, and reflecting accurately what these people are trying to say as well. So, you know, with that realisation at SBS that I wanted to be a journalist, um, 
I and and particularly a foreign correspondent, I just did what I had to, I suppose. So I moved to um, regional uh, Australia, Albury Donga specifically for Win News. You know, which is you know they always say earn your stripes when you go regional. Um, <laughs> when I moved to when I moved back to Melbourne, ABC, I wasn't getting where I wanted to be, so I took a job in Darwin that catapulted me uh, a bit. I had some luck up there. I actually uh, reported a bunch of Australians who went to Syria to fight for the Kurdish militia against Islamic State, oh. um, and so from that. Back to Melbourne, I focus on video journalism. One thing um, I am is a video journalist. The foreign correspondent, I don't film myself. Um, we, we get the, the absolute pros in to film this. Are, but, are you front of camera um, for that as well? Yeah, yeah. So I was, present, so when I'm usually, a lot of stories, not all of them, but a lot of stories you see me do, I've filmed. Ah, I've got a producer right. with me as well, but I film and photograph. And that's a skill I knew I needed for various postings of the ABC. Some are properly camera crew. Um, this one isn't we hire cameras if we need to for you know prime minister visits tomorrow let's say but um you know i just kind of knew this is what i wanted to be and i'm very grateful that i had that realization long ago so i applied for jakarta bangkok um, a few other postings and i was getting close and then i finally was very lucky to get india um pity about the timing though Uh, but you know we all had a horrid time in in covid didn't we so um you know that's I was there, but I got evacuated twice uh, because of the the pandemic. Um, mm. The second time was the more horrific, where my partner was pregnant at the time. Yeah, and Delta hit, and we were, the, the whole city was overwhelmed. And uh, you know, at times it felt like the apocalypse. It um, yeah. was very hard to see the horizon. Mm. You knew that the wave would end, but it's very hard to really appreciate that. And so eventually, uh, we we're meant to get evacuated, but I had a false positive test as uh, so I kicked off an evacuation flight and got another flight soon after. And, you know, we just won't go back to India after that. It's too polluted with the young one, young uh, baby. Delhi's pollution is horrific. Wow. And so uh, I was very fortunate that I could apply for this job up here. And now I'm in Japan. <laughs> oh. That is your question. Oh, audience. my God. Well, you know what? That's one less person in PR. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that sounds like a great success story. Uh, and it is a wonderful reminder uh, for all of us, you know, what a, what a privilege it really is to do the job of, of being a journalist. And, and uh, yes, no, we've, you've produced obviously some really wonderful work on that and we all really look forward mm-hmm. to, in 15 minutes uh, on Australian time, uh, your, the next episode of Foreign Correspondent will be playing. Um, James, thank you so much for, for joining us. Apologies again for some of the technical issues we had at the start, um, but we really appreciate your time and we look forward to seeing the full episode. No worries. I hope uh, people, you know, enjoy it. It's um, kind of quite heavy at points, but it's, you know, really amazing people we meet down there as well. So I hope people uh, enjoy it, learn something and find it fascinating as well. So really appreciate the chat this evening. Thanks so much, James. Bye. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. So, Najma, Senate Charlie. estimates, what are, what are you thinking? Um, I feel like I've just kind of been, I guess like with um, RBA boss kind of Philip Lowe going on and being grilled by the Greens, um, I think Minister, Senator, sorry, don't know the name, but um, just being kind of questioned around um, interest rate hikes and stuff. It's just been fascinating to see the kind of different kind of schools of... Different types of... Different approaches? 
Oh, just the way, yeah, different approaches to questioning people in um, positions of power. And I've been, my algorithm on social media has been showing me a lot of Senate inquiry stuff um, from the US. And it's just fascinating to see how um, strains of politics approach things in a very different way. Um, But also noticing, like at the moment, now that we have a Labor government, that um, the Senate estimates don't seem to have the same... um, the same mood. Right, the same spice. <laughs> Look, I didn't want to say that. <laughs> but they just don't have the same sting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were talking about this before we went on air, and I think the, the sort of the, the, the first explanation for that probably is mm. that we are still in the phase of Senate estimates. We're still, still in the phase of this government. The, mm. the things that Senate estimates are really investigating are the failures of the previous government, which I think does let everyone off the hook a little bit yeah. to some degree. So it might be, yeah, it might be interesting to revisit that, you know, in three years and see if there's a bit more. <laughs> three years. <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, I think there's a, there's a, and it's interesting what you're saying before about the kind of the grilling, say that, say Philip Lowe um, received, and um, that you weren't always a hundred percent. Uh, impressed with the line of questioning, which I thought was... Uh... I think that I think the line of questioning is fine, and I think it's probably what a lot of um, people who are facing, you know, mortgage rate rises to the point mm. where they might not have a home and something that they've worked so hard for probably go up in smoke, sure. Um, but at the same time, it was kind of like... I, I just felt like there needed to be maybe some questions that spoke to um, maybe, like, specific details around... Um, the board's decision-making process behind interest Mm. rate like hikes. And I know that there were comments around that, um, but I feel like when you ask questions like, um, you know, what's the mortgage average person, you know, how can you justify still having this job? It kind of gives some, it gives him, it's a known goal. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like the response to that, it's going to be, a sensible response, isn't it? And it's going to be, what do you expect? <laughs> this is the world that we live in, kind of response. And I don't know. It's just, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, and I think it does. It does come back to the front, to the to the sort of trend of the last couple of years, and it comes down to, I suppose, you know, self presentation from a lot of the politicians involved. Senate estimates has become very, very much. It's still, it's still. By the way, I'm going to caveat what I'm about to say by saying it still is an incredibly important process that works very well and gets really yeah. important information on the public record. I think there's no one who would uh, dispute that. But one little side, uh, one little tangent of of that process is the uh, the use of it, particularly from either like peripheral figures in the major parties or or sort of the smaller parties, yeah. uh, star performers. The use of that for like content, like they'll mm-hmm. go, "Here's me grilling this uh, public servant." Look, look, <laughs> and it becomes more about their performance than the actual answers that they're eliciting. I mean, you saw. I mean, it's, so it's an enormous platform for a young senator, a young MP, to be sure, able sure. to um, you know stick it to the big guy. Almost. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. At uh, the same time, it kind of yeah, I don't know. Mm. Well, I mean, you, you also see someone like, uh, say, uh, One Nation Senator Malcolm Roberts use it to kind of ask legitimately bizarre questions of, <laughs> of say, Bureau of Meteorology scientists, and he puts that out for his audience, and it's it's, it's content. It's not really about – he's not in good faith trying to find the actual yeah. answer. He's trying to perform to a different crowd, which is um, very interesting. And we also saw, of course, the ABC um, being uh, hauled in front of, of – uh, of estimates as well um, yeah. over some of the reporting that they've been doing uh, in the Northern Territory. Um, I mean, what was your view on that on that story? Or, or I mean, I guess did you have any uh, yeah any response to that? I don't know. I think um, 
I think probably like I'm always going to feel a little bit concerned about the kind of cultural and mental safety of um, the journalist involved, sure. especially being an Indigenous journalist. I'm very keen to know how that um, journalist is being supported by yeah, the organisation they work for. Um, that's always front of mind, um, especially when it was a radio segment um, and it was a story. Um, and I feel like some of the criticism around it, I sh- it like hundreds, not thousands, yes, that maybe that that's not accurate yeah. you needed to probably say thousands but i just felt like i don't know i just I, i'm concerned about the safety of that journalist Absolutely. for sure just like what they're going through and stuff yeah you know? yeah and exactly it raises huge not questions in a, about... you know they're going to get you know there's going to be pitchforks and all of that <laughs> and you know not any of that just more like how are you going how are you handling things you know? yeah yeah for sure i mean it is it's a very high pressure job and yeah. especially if you're in sort of more remote areas do you have the infrastructure around you to be really properly supported both in terms of your you know well-being but 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 also in terms of that that you know if if a if editorial errors of the sort that we saw in that piece come to light that's not solely on the reporter there should be people a lot exactly. a lot of filters especially when you're dealing with something that is very complicated and incredibly sensitive and incredibly hot button topic there should be you can say that such... again it was front page news for sure for sure yeah yeah so that surprises me but then also liberal senator also having the same concerns I do. Hmm, interesting. Yes, yes. It's, it's, I think there's a real... I mean, I mean yes, I think uh, the, the Liberal Centre in question is, is a long-time critic of the ABC, and if you can do that while still being a decent human being, I suppose, all the better for... <laughs> but I don't know. What's the intention behind that? Um, is it just obviously maybe... Um, I won't say obviously, but is it to have a little bit of a dig at the ABC? Oh, I, I suspect that the, the, the use of the phrase, you know, profoundly let down by the ABC management does does sort of tell its own story a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and again, it goes back to what, what the uh, people... I guess, you know, Senate estimates can be used for several things at the same time, and, and that's potentially <laughs> two birds, uh, one stone. Exactly, a very worthwhile, uh, very worthwhile line of questioning that was also doubling up as a very useful bit of culture yeah. warring. Yeah, and also, but it's, I guess that's the uh, uh, politics. You know, that's the game. But it is a very important process um, and a, a way to uphold democracy in this country. Absolutely. So, yeah, bring more on. Yes, yes. Look at me backtracking all the way. (laughs) Blessed Senate estimates, indeed. Well, that probably about does it for us. Najma, it's been so great having you back. Um, We'll have to do it again sometime. (laughs) (laughs) And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Naj Samble, at Lily Juice, and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this.